Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. All right. So now we're going to talk a little bit about uh, the various uh, Johnny Dollars. And we'll start out with Charles Russell. Russell uh, held down the role, uh, started in February of 1949, and continued on uh, until early 1950. Uh, it was the second shortest reign of any of the uh, Johnny Dollars, uh, and it was a very different style than what would come later, wasn't it? Yes. He was uh, a little bit glib, flippant. He was uh, a little bit lecherous. He had no compunction at all against padding the expense account. He always had a wisecrack. He always seemed to get the job done, too. Oh yeah, yeah, and, and you know, and you know, listeners will, who were listening to this, you know, for the first episode it was played on, just heard the first episode with the one dollar tips, and I love that, you know, whole, you know, now my family's gonna eat, um, oh, yeah. uh, sort of attitude. Yeah, and you know, back in those days, a dollar would buy a lot of beefsteak. Oh yeah, well, when you're only dealing with like uh, a total of a dollar thirty for the cab, that, that tells you what the money was like. But it it did have a lot sort of lighter feel. Gil Dowd, who was the writer, he he worked on Sam Spade, and uh, you, you can kind of see a lot of the same sort of influence and feel to it. Yes, very much so. But that dollar tip did not last long. There's only like three or four shows that memory served me, right? Right. Now, Edmund O'Brien comes to the show, and he brings something, you know, really different. I mean, I think he was – it's safe to say that he was the most hard-boiled of the Johnny Dollar actors. Oh, yes. Absolutely. No doubt about it. And he, he I mean, carried that over from his movie uh, roles where he – yeah, you know, typically would play a heavy or you know, uh, a, you know, a bad guy sometimes. But he had the voice for it. He had the mannerisms for it. You know, what can you say about a guy who was raised in Brooklyn? Oh yeah, and he, you know, uh, you know, he would be very tough. Even you know, I think there was a real world weary sense to his, where you know he would you know, have these, you know, even when he was in some of these more tender moments, there would be this sense of, wow, this is just a horrible situation and such a flawed world that we live in, uh, with him even on some occasions mouthing off to the insurance company that hired him. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, his classic line is, Johnny, are you working on a case? Yeah, Kentucky bonded. <laughs> Now, John he was, Lund... He was not afraid of uh, you know, having a drink of five or ten. Oh, yeah. You, you definitely... You kind of have that sort of whole... 
um, tough, brawling Irishman uh, sort of vibe with the way that he plays the role, with also that sort of you know sadness as well that goes with that. Uh, yeah, yeah, both Russell and uh, O'Brien, they, they wondered really why they were doing it, uh, but they did it, yeah, nonetheless. And it seemed like the wolf was always at the door, and they had to take whatever was thrown at them. But, uh, you know, it, it, they always leave out one interesting little factoid about all of these cases. He got paid a percentage of what he saved the insurance company. He made some pretty Which Oh, yeah, sometimes that was substantial, though some cases he didn't save him anything and he just got his expense account, I guess. Well, they're typically, and I forget which, which story it was, you know, like uh, he had a set fee. If, if I went out and I invented, investigated a case and everything was on the up and up, well, I got my standard uh, fee for that investigation. However, if I saved you a bazillion dollars, well, I got a percentage of that bazillion dollars. And they, they never really bring that out. And I think if they had done that, they probably would have you know, ruined the entire uh, underlying, the underwriting theory of the whole program with the man with the action-packed expense account and... Uh, so, yeah, it was left out probably for good cause. Now, John Lund, he, he took over. He was the uh, – he, he was actually the – after Bob Bailey, we had the most episodes uh, featuring John Lund. And you thought that the way he started out, the, uh, his portrayal of Johnny was – you said in the book that it was a little uh, – bland and boring, but uh, that it did improve over time. Yes. Yeah, a couple of times, uh, yeah, he'd pick up the phone and so-and-so and so, and so oh, hi, you know, uh, as opposed to, you know, O'Brien who would, you know, uh, had to apologize sometimes for being brusque over the phone, and uh, Bob Bailey who, you know, uh, you know, he just had a totally different persona about him. But Lund started off very quiet, very meek, a little bit unsure of himself, but he, he developed a good character uh, towards the end of it. When I think of him, I really think of the episodes because, the, like, the, the flip side, I think he did pretty well in the episodes where he, you know, he where that softness or tenderness, for example, would be called for, like something like the San Antonio matter, um, where he just really, I think, did a good job emotionally connecting. But at the same point in time, there was one, um, uh, the Starlet matter, I think it is, where he uh, he, he was kissed by the. Uh, uh, the, the starlet, and he had to check in the mirror to make sure his eyebrows weren't on fire. So you know, he, had a, he had a good one-liner, and he, he, he you know, had his fair share of the uh, the action with the with the uh, uh, the uh, female you know, uh, characters in the story. So yeah, he was a good he was a good character. 
Now, of course, the biggest and longest-running Johnny Dollar was, uh, of course, Bob Bailey. And, you know, we've talked about the, the serials, but then you have uh, more than four years of, uh, of uh, weekly half-hour episodes. And I think, you know, it's fair to say the writing started out really well, but there was a bit of decline in terms of some of the mysteries. But they created just a really, like, almost unprecedented amount of continuity around uh, uh, Bob Bailey, Jack Johnstone did, with, like, Alvin Cartwright. And, you know, he could write things. He could keep things. He probably had a little card filing system uh, so that uh, he knew what he wrote. He probably had a pretty good idea of what he was going to write next. And uh, he did a good job of character development. Yeah, because, you know, most detective shows, you know, and I think they'd be true for both radio and television, you had, like, maybe a, a couple of supporting characters, but then you just have all of these characters who would show up and they'd say, oh, uh, I'm, I'm so-and-so's lifelong friend, or, oh, he sold this for me. But here on... You know, with Johnny Dollar and Bob Bailey, these are all, you know, these cases they connect to and they're referring back to actual cases, not stuff that just happened off somewhere. Right. Although there are, there are instances where I pointed out, we say, oh, I worked with so-and-so on such-and-such a case, and you go back to the original story, it was somebody else. But uh, the, the fact is that they were able to build continuity over time with previous cases, and uh, it gave the uh, persona of a character who's been around, done a lot of things, was known, trusted, and got the job done. And of course, it's under Bob Bailey that we begin to get the idea that uh, Johnny is a real-life person, you know, because he gets, you know, he gets his cases broadcast over the radio. It's one of the things that I wanted to do with the book, especially the beginning part of it. I wanted to write about Johnny Dollar as if he were a real-life person, somebody that you could call up on the phone and say, hey, Johnny, let's go out and have a beer and, and, and talk about uh, the games this weekend, uh, somebody who you know, was real. But it's all yeah, and allowed you to do that. Yeah, and just you know, so much detail that went into that. Now, the Bob Reddick uh, era uh, is one where he's actually had the shortest uh, time as uh, Johnny Dollar, uh, just uh, from uh, November of '60 over into the summer of 1961. And we actually didn't know a whole lot about the missing episodes, and there's a good number given how short he was on the program. But you had uh, a development, and it's something that's new to the second edition uh, with some discovery of uh, some scripts. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yes. Uh, 2013, I believe it was, my friend Stuart Wright uh, from Boulder, Colorado, who is a, 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 an old-time radio researcher. He was at the Thousand Oaks Library, and they had just discovered a collection of scripts from the Pacific Pioneer broadcasters, and he was looking through them, 
and he just made some quick notes on all the new Johnny Dollar programs that he did not have in his catalog and that I did not know about. And so we talked uh, uh, over a couple of weeks about things, and I just made the determination uh, in 2016, uh, after I had retired, that I'll just make another uh, trip out to uh, California. I spent a couple of days in the library looking at all of these strips, uh, scripts, figuring out where they fit in the, uh, the canon, and it has allowed me to pretty much create an accurate flow of the stories because most of the stories at that point in time, they always had a what we call the next week tag. Next week I do this. Next week I do that. And when you take those and compare them against what was actually broadcast uh, over the air, you really get a, an opportunity to put things in a proper order. And uh, I think that by having those scripts now, uh, we've gotten rid of uh, stories that don't really exist. We've got a couple of them that were in there in the, the, the quote-unquote catalog twice with different same story, different names. Um, all of that has been uh, eliminated. Uh, plus, I was able to uh, take a really serious dive into the uh, Mandel-Kramer programs uh, because... Once I started adding all of these things into the database I keep, I had more programs than I had weeks to broadcast them in. So I knew there was something wrong somewhere. And uh, various different conversations with various different folks, and we determined that there was a program in the uh, Mandel-Kramer series. Somebody had just invented it, didn't exist, it was actually the story that came uh, after it, and I took that out, and now I have 95 stories to cover 95 weeks. And everything, I believe, is about as accurate as I can get it. Yeah, and that, that's always a challenge with these uh, research. Uh, now, Reddick uh, is, uh, you know, I don't know, I think hardly anyone who would list him as their favorite Johnny Dollar, but he, he did a good job, and he was actually quite a bit younger than Bob Bailey. Uh, he was the age that, because uh, you, you mentioned in the book, that Johnny Dollar, during the Bailey era, stated a few, a few times that he was in his 30s, uh, and Reddick actually was that age. Yes, Uh he came uh, came from a very prolific uh, uh, family. His father, uh, Frank Reddick, was the shadow for a while. Uh, Bob did some work on Broadway. He did uh, various different radio programs. He made a couple of movies when he was younger. Uh, he just kind of... Uh, why he was chosen to be Johnny Dollar, I don't know. A lot of people think he was miscast. I think though, he gives a, he gives a credible performance uh, for the programs that he did. Uh, I enjoy listening to him. Of course, um, yeah, I enjoy listening to any Johnny Dollar, but that's that's beside <laughs> the point. Um, but then again, he just disappeared, 
And the story that I have been told was that uh, Bob had some uh, some uh, mental problems, and uh, apparently he was doing one show. I can't remember the name of it, but uh, he kind of freaked out over the air and just scared the living daylights out of everybody. And uh, the thinking is that he probably had a mental breakdown, and CBS had no alternative but to call up Mandel Kramer and say, Mandel, you're Johnny Dollar tomorrow. Now, one thing on the Reddick era, like I think probably my standout Reddick program, and this is for personal reasons, is the Yak uh, mystery matter. Uh, because actually, when I was, like until I was five, my family lived up there. And yeah, up I shared it with... Oh, yeah, and I shared it with my mom, and as far as she could tell, you know, everything was just incredibly accurate. And there are times when uh, Johnstone will make up a location, but when he talks about real location, there's a real uh, attention to detail in what he does. And you know why he does that, or why he was able to do that? He had a death cat in his office. And he was looking for a site. He'd pull it out and say, give me something in Montana. Oh, yeah, that sounds interesting. And so it was a real place. Even there's one story uh, in the Bob Bailey. Just uh, details where it. He, he goes to uh, Ong's Hat in New Jersey. Oh, there is an Ong's Hat. The, and the, the Pine Barrows of New Jersey is where Jack Johnstone was raised. So... He, he could pull out real names when he needed to. Yeah, and there were locations, I think, that he... It did sound like sometimes, like when Johnny would wax poetic, that these were places that Jack Johnstone had been and had some fond connections to. Well, one of his, one of his favorite places was the, uh, uh, the Lake Mojave Resort. There is a Lake Mojave Resort... There was a Buster Favor, and there was a Ham Pratt. And Jack Johnstone used to go fishing with them. Wow. Jack Johnstone also invented a type of fishing hook and some other things. I mean, Jack Johnstone, he would go fishing at the drop of a hat. He used to go fishing with Robert Taylor and uh, others. So, you know, when you talk about all of these fishing locations... Yeah, he spoke from experience. Now, the last one we want to talk about is Mandel Kramer, who was the last, but certainly not the least. I mean, he was, I, I, I've often thought that he was, you know, probably ideally suited to, uh, to this just because of the amount of pure radio experience and uh, uh, that he brought to this uh, role, which wasn't something that was uh, was common uh, in this uh, when you get to the 1960s. No, absolutely. Mandel Kramer had been around you know, uh, from the very early days, uh, and he always gave a good, solid performance. Uh, he was uh, a character on uh, some of the uh, Reddick programs. And so it was very easy for him just to pick up the role 
when necessary. And he, he was, uh, given the times that he was acting in, he kind of, you know, livened up the character a little bit, made him a little bit hepper. Uh, the music was just a little bit jazzier. And uh, he, he brought in some modern conveniences like a call center, you know, to take his telephone calls and that sort of thing. So, yeah, he just, they just kind of brought it up to date a little bit. Uh, and uh, it lasted till the... Uh, uh, the last days of radio. Yeah, and he, you know, he was one who he continued to, you know, reach out to uh, fa- uh, to to fans because I've heard interviews, you know, that he gave to you know old time uh, radio uh, programs, and uh, he appeared at conventions. So he was really an ambassador uh, for the industry and for that history, even after the Golden Age ended. Right. Yeah, I just did a real quick uh, um, query on uh, it's not what I want. Um, he was uh, active on um, the edge of night, and he was in quite a number of uh, episodes between 1960 and uh, 1970, I believe it is. So, yeah, right at the end of the radio, he was segueing into uh, TV. Uh, It was was, uh, relatively easy for him to do. And I think that everybody pretty much figured out that uh, you know, the writing was, uh, was on the wall for uh, old-time radio. And everybody who could was uh, making that transition uh, so that uh, when the end did come, those who could make the transition to television did. Those who uh, used to write for old-time radio were now writing for the movies and for TV and for much more money uh, than they could have ever gotten in uh, radio. And uh, But unfortunately, like everything else, there were some that just couldn't make the, uh, couldn't make the transition. Now, one thing you mentioned is that because the last... Um uh, the last uh, episode that ever aired of Johnny Dollar was the tip-off matter, but that there was actually one script after that, which kind of gives a hint to how little notice was actually given that this was gonna, going to come to an end. Exactly. We, uh, Stuart Wright, uh, in this uh, group of scripts, he found a, uh, a script which is dated October the 7th, 1962, which is the week after uh, CBS pulled the plug, it was a uh, it was an interesting script. It was a uh, a takeoff for a, of the the be or not to be matter, where Johnny is out tracking uh, uh, somebody who's pulling a fast one in hotels. Interestingly, it has two beginnings, so the the network could choose which one they wanted, but it was never broadcast. Yeah, and there are quite a few, uh, quite a few that were like that. Uh, 
you know, where you, you'll find these sort of unbroadcast scripts. Um, I did want to ask: Did you have any other uh, any other information or uh, final thoughts? Anything that uh, is in the book that uh, you wanted to discuss that we haven't gotten to yet? Oh, how many days do you have for me to rattle on? Uh, you know, it's if for somebody who really wants to know about the series and who wants to dig in and actually listen to, read, look at all the cultural references, the historical references that are in all of these stories over the time, uh, you can read this thing through and you'll always find something new and something interesting. And I tried to uh, bring out uh, all the... Uh, uh, the um, things that were happening in the story, like uh, there's one where they introduced the, uh, the the Boeing 707. There was a story where they bring in the whole concept of direct dial uh, telephone. So you can read these things, you can see when they were broadcast, you can see when things happen, and get a kind of a perspective on uh, what things were like back in the old days. All right. Well, thank you so much uh, for your time and for joining us. I appreciate it, John. And uh, the title, once again, is the Who is Johnny Dollar Matter? And it is available either as a paperback or as an ebook in the Kindle store. Thank you so much uh, for uh, joining us. Well, thank you very much for the opportunity. I guess the camera is off now. I I am trying to, uh, I think, all right, stop recording, stop recording. Okay. It doesn't seem to want to stop. I, I will, I will, all right, let's see. Okay, let me. All right. So I think I will. Uh, we'll we'll say our goodbyes, and I'll cut that off at the end. I'll try another key, which should work and uh, in the recording, but it'll also uh, knock us both off the line. So, uh, uh, so uh, I'm glad to learn that uh, the Russell stuff was right, and. Uh, 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 and other than that, I actually thought it went better this time overall, you know, yes. uh, going through it the second time. Yeah, I don't know what was happening yesterday. Uh, the only thing I can say, there's probably a pigeon that was sitting on an Internet connection somewhere, and uh, <laughs> he moved. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I switched phones. I switched to my cell, and that, that seemed to work better than the landline. So that may have been it. So... All right. Okay, well, I'm thank ready to send you those pictures, and uh, it's got a reference to a book in there, and um, uh, be worth be interesting to look into. All right. Well, uh, I'll uh, look forward to that. Okay. Uh, it's zooming over the, the Mississippi right now. <laughs> All right. We'll talk to you later. Okay, thank you now. Bye-bye.
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.